So today's reading will be from Daniel 3, and you can find that on page 884 of the Blue Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, may no, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you are ready to fall down, sorry, if you are ready to fall down, and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods 
or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, good morning again, everyone. What do you like when the heat is on? And by that I mean when the heat is on your faithfulness to your Christian faith. What happens when in your presence or among your colleagues, in conversation with your mates, um, people make it clear that all they think all religious roads lead to the one God? What if your boss asks you to effectively lie to a client or stretch the truth just a little? to get the business or to avoid responsibility for a mistake that you or others have made? What does a Christian politician do when asked to join a community multi-faith service that he knows, he or she knows, will involve prayers to a God they know does not exist? A couple of weeks ago, Meredith and I watched a program on SBS called Christians Like Us. Some of you may have seen it. A group of ten Christians, anyway, 
from different church backgrounds lived together for a week discussing all sorts of uh, ethical issues and other issues uh, related to religion. It was both fascinating and at the same time very disturbing. What was surprising was that one woman included in this group was a Mormon, a committed member of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. A church, if I can put it that way, that might state that Jesus is the Son of God but certainly will not state that Jesus is God the Son. That is, it won't seem as divine, it denies the Trinity, the very nature of God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit and hence really truly is sub-Christian. This woman, however, was a lovely person by all accounts. Enthusiastic, she said she loved Jesus and was truly hurt that others in the group who did not see her, uh, by others in the group who did not see her as a true Christian. However, by the end of this week, rubbing shoulders with each other, living, talking, etc., conversing, one of the people who was a church minister said as a result of that week she now believed she was a Christian. You see, the pressure was on everybody living at such close quarters to compromise the truth about God, what he requires, how they should live. For something close, she said she loved Jesus. But in the end, uh, you have to love the Jesus who's revealed himself as he is. Otherwise, it's just false. And in case you haven't realised it yet, that pressure, that heat, is getting stronger and stronger in our society today in a number of ways and I think will only increase in the future. And that is what I think the story of Daniel 3 is really all about today. I've called it in the outline, which is in your booklet, if you want to have a look at it, When the Heat is On. And uh, our story, of course, in our story uh, today, the heat is both literal and figurative, isn't it? <laughs> for for um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're literally thrown into a burning furnace beyond measure, the heat beyond measure. But the more important heat is the one they exposed to figuratively to compromise their faith in the God of Israel. Hence my subtitle up there, When the Heat is On, The Worship of God Alone. Now Daniel 3 opens in verse 1 with these words. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura uh, in the province of Babylon. It was massive. 60 cubits, about 27 metres high. I don't know how high this building is. How high do you reckon this is? 15 metres, I don't know. 27 metres high. 2.7 metres wide. It's a bit weird. Um, how did it stand up? Well, probably, um, as some have suggested, it was probably on a substantial base and the height may have included uh, that base to stand up. But it was a massive thing. And what's staggering, I think, about uh, this event or this statue narrated here is it's narrated straight after the previous story in chapter two, uh, which Luke brought to us last week. Took us through chapter two. Remember what happened? King had a disturbing dream. 
None of his enchanters, magicians or astrologers <coughs> could tell the king what the dream was, let alone interpret it. But Daniel and his three friends prayed to God and Daniel was given the king's dream and a vision and the interpretation of the dream. And at the end of chapter 2, in chapter 2 verse 47, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says these words, Surely our God is the God, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries you were able to reveal this mystery. One verse later, in chapter 3, he sets up this massive golden statue. So I think we have to assume that there's a bit of time that goes between chapter 2 and 3, um, between these incidents. They, they probably don't follow on um, one after the other. The narrator is just dealing with important stories along the way. Nevertheless, the fact that he does build this statue, I think the king's construction shows that his real interest in the promotion of Daniel and his friends was really self-interest. They interpreted his dream, so he knew what it was about. Um, They were promoted because of their insight and not because he truly acknowledged that God was the Lord of kings. Hence, when that self-interest is, um, let's say, perceived as being threatened, as it is in Daniel 3, the king turns on the very people he had earlier promoted. The episode in chapter 3 then begins with what I've called the call to worship idols. Now, we're not told in the story what the statue was. Uh, Was it a statue of Nebuchadnezzar or something else? It had to be a giant statue and who would figure out... You you wouldn't want to make a statue 27 metres high of Nebuchadnezzar, would you? You might end up not making it right and he'd throw you in the furnace or something because it didn't look good. Who knows? Was it of human form or just some giant um, object? Nebuchadnezzar may have instructed it of gold, constructed it of gold, um, because in his dream, if you remember Daniel 2... Um, the big statue that was his dream had a head of gold to begin with and Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he was that head of gold and this may have been the reason that he actually made uh, the statue of gold, we're not sure. The problem was not the statue itself, you see. It's not the statue that's the problem. We don't see that it was called a god. The problem was Nebuchadnezzar's demand to worship a statue. In verses 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar calls everyone together to dedicate this image and then the herald announces in verse 4, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and I felt like saying, and saxophone, and all kinds of music, um, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. It's this demand for worship to fall prostrate on the ground before the statue that is the problem. In biblical terms, it's the call to worship an idol in the place of God. The heat is on for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. What will they do? Well, we'll see in a moment. But before we get there, I want to look for a moment at the worship of idols um, in our own age. You see, it's easy for us to 
write off this worship, I think, of a statue as stupid, isn't it? I mean, who would do that today? Who could do that today? Now, of course, there are still, aren't there, objects and statues in some religions that are worshipped today, but our Western culture, being sophisticated as it is, have pretty much got past that. We realise, don't we, that statues and objects are just made of materials that we use and can't possibly be gods or things we ought to worship. Yet, idolatry in Western culture is as rife as it has been in any time in history, just maybe less visible and more subtle. Idolatry, you see, is about a person's replacement for God. Human beings, by their nature, are worshippers. That is the way God created us to be. I like the way Paul Tillich, a German theologian in the mid-20th century, defined idolatry. Tillich pointed out that a person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. Let me just repeat that. A person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. It's worth pondering what that is for each one of us. In our world today, one might think of the pursuit of pleasure. And by that I don't just mean things like sex and porn, but the yearning to get a high, be on a high, through things like drugs and alcohol. One might think of the accumulation of uh, material possessions, things and stuff, as Luke has brought home to us so well in the last few weeks, aptly describing that. It might be the pursuit of influence and power. As one writer puts it, all our efforts and strengths thus become directed towards amassing power and influence in society, in our family, and I can tell you, even in the church. Or very subtly, it could take the form of the worship of a personal relationship, say the worship of family. Anything for the family is a theme of a significant number of recent movies in our culture, in case you haven't actually picked that up. Anything in the family, anything for the family, um, and it often means behaving in a dodgy way or badly to other people as a result. The German, the great Reformation German theologian John Calvin said, I love this phrase, the human mind is a factory of idols. The human mind is a factory of idols. We are constantly, even as Christians, in a struggle with temptation, this sort of temptation. Now these are only a few examples. The list is actually vast. And that's what, it makes, that's what makes it particularly dangerous. So what does the faithful worship, what does faithful worship look like? The worship of the one true God. 
Now this is where we come to the response of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Some of the astrologers come to Nebuchadnezzar and thought that these three Jews pay no attention to the king's decree to work at the statue. Now of course it's likely that the astrologers were fairly jealous and angry um, of these Jews, uh, fairly jealous and angry about the fact that Daniel and his friends had now been made rulers and administrators over the whole province and over them. So the refusal of the three to bow down to the statue probably gave them an opportunity to strike back at them. The king is furious and so orders the three men brought before them to answer the charge. But as far as they are concerned, there's nothing to say. They have nothing to defend. In verses 17 and 18, they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. Of course, this makes the king even more furious. Need I say, brothers and sisters, that this is not the way to win friends and influence people. One of the power idols of our day. But it does represent a faithful allegiance to God when it comes to the real issue here. Resisting the temptation to compromise. You see, they didn't even try to justify themselves before the king. I want you to imagine for a moment the excuses that they might have made to each other uh, when discussing whether to bow down to the statue as they're being hauled into the king's presence or whatever. David Guzik, uh, who's a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel in Santa Barbara in the US, has helpfully suggested a few that seem to us to have a very common modern ring. It's what I call the language of compromise. See if you recognise their seduction in the modern day. They might have said, hey, we'll lose our jobs and our standard of living if we don't bow down. Or they might have said, after all, we're not actually being called to renounce our God. They might have said, well, everyone else is doing it. What's the problem? Or they might have said, it's only for once and not for very long. Ten minutes is all we have to do, just for the king. It's stupid to throw our lives away for ten minutes. Or they might have said, this is more than can be expected of us. God will understand, surely, just this once. They sound familiar, don't they? I can hear them ringing in my ear sometimes. Beware if you think you are beyond such rationalisations as a Christian. Satan is a master of tempting us with rationalisations like these. I once had a good friend from a prominent Christian family in the church I was at at the time who was the leader of uh, the youth group at the time. Uh, He left his wife on Christmas Day 18 months 
after they were married, to take up with one of the girls in the youth group. And eventually he divorced and they were married. His excuse? I made a mistake and God will forgive me. To worship God alone is to resist any temptation to place anything else before the service and obedience of God. And that is true regardless of the consequences. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said, it is ours to do the right and leave the results with the Lord. And the results here were clear, weren't they? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were prepared to resist the temptation to compromise their worship of God even to the point of death. And they've been joined by many Christian, faithful Christian believers throughout history and very much that is so still today in other countries of the world. The Church Missionary Society, CMS, who we have the rose as um, we partner with, has many people today serving in places where their lives would be under threat if the authorities knew they were Christians and shared the gospel with people. Now we may not be in that position here but the stance against Christians, the biblical values and allegiance to the one true God is getting disarmingly and discerningly stronger. It may not cost you your life right now but it may cost you a promotion a friend and even a form of violence against your family in some cases. What will you risk if the circumstances are to be faithful to God no matter what? Make no mistake, faithfulness to God will meet its proper reward. It's totally worth it. The faithful God The faithful worship of the one true God will always lead to what we see here in Daniel 3, the deliverance of the one true God. Just imagine what lay before Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The king so furious he ordered the furnace heated so hot that the soldiers throwing them in got blasted so badly that they were destroyed. But we have to be careful here to make sure that we don't assume that faithfulness to God always means things will go well in this life. The response of the three men to the king certainly don't imply that. If we go back to verses 17 and 18, if we are thrown in the blazing furnace, a God who serves us is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego express some confidence in God, don't they? He's able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your hand in this case. And they probably had every right to imagine that God would do that because they just had in chapter 2 their incredible answer to prayer where God had revealed to Daniel the king's dream. And so there's every reason for them to assume that God would act now also. Nevertheless, though, there is no presumption upon God that he must save them. 
He is sovereign and he determines his purposes. Their job was to remain faithful and as Spurgeon said, leave the rest to God. Now with the greater revelation we have of Christ and the completion of the scriptures, it's become even more clear that God's faithful disciples are not exempted from the fallenness of this world. Suffering, both in terms of persecution and the experience of sickness and disaster, will be part of the disciples' experience. So I think we ought to think of God's deliverance really in two ways. And strangely enough, I think they're both represented in the story. If I can put it this way, the first aspect of God's deliverance is the presence of God through, that's the big word, through the fire. The three men are thrown into the furnace but the king notices suddenly in amazement a very strange thing in verses 24 and 25. Then the king, then king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and thrown in the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, well look, I see four, four men walking around in the fire and unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I'm not sure what that must have looked like but anyway. Now many in the church of course, the early Christian church, have seen this fourth person as the presence of Jesus Christ who of course is the son of God. In, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's words with the three men. And one might certainly see a prefigurement of the one who gave up his majesty in heaven to be born a human being as Emmanuel, God with us. But I think the point to be taken is the manner of God's deliverance. As one writer says, he saved them in the fire, not from the fire. They were in the very jaws of death Moreover, he could have saved them without further fanfare, simply having them walk out of the fire unscathed, but instead he chose to save them by a presence of a fourth who is like a son of the gods. You see, God was showing Nebuchadnezzar who was really in charge. The image may not have been of Nebuchadnezzar himself, we don't know, but by creating it, he certainly put himself in the place of God. No one, however, can thwart the purposes of God. He truly is the Lord of Kings, as Nebuchadnezzar had stated at the end of chapter 2. Surely that is what we are to see by the fact that the three men were thrown into the fire fully clothed and yet as verse 27 tells us they saw the fire had not harmed their bodies nor the hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. For us brothers and sisters we have the promises of Jesus that regardless of what we go through in this life because of the fallenness of our world and opposition to God he will always be with us to the end of the age. We have his promise that each believer has been given to him by the Father and no one can snatch them out of his hand. And we have those great words of the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 8 that nothing at all 
can ultimately separate us from the love of Christ. And in the end, God's deliverance will go way beyond the presence of God through the fire to the ultimate purpose, the salvation of God from the fire. After Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego come out of the fire, Nebuchadnezzar declares uh, probably some of my favourite verses in Daniel uh, chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3 there, verses 28 and 29. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. What a marvellous statement about God who saves those who trust him. And we now know, don't we, so much more of this marvellous salvation of our God through the death, resurrection, ascension and ultimate return for which we wait of his son Jesus Christ our Lord, the Lord of kings. I love the way the writer puts this chapter together and particularly um, I love the way that the last part of verse 29 answers the challenge of the king of the last part of verse 15. See in verse 15 the king's furious at the refusal of three men uh, the statue declares and he's going uh, to immediately throw them in the furnace and he says this then what God Here's a challenge. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? But by the end of the chapter, he declares, for no other God can save in this way. Indeed. No other God in Christ can maintain his purity, holiness and justice and yet save the ungodly, you and me at the same time. No other God sends his son into the world to die on our behalf and take the punishment we deserve so that we can be forgiven, have the hope of eternity forever with him. No other God lives in each person who trusts in him through the gift of his Holy Spirit. No. No other God can save in this way. Let me conclude with Paul's well-known words in Romans 12, 1 and 2, slightly adapted and expanded by me. Having explained the great salvation of God brought through um, 
Jesus, Paul exhorts in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship of the one true God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, to compromise your allegiance to God through the pursuit of pleasure or things or power or even family, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. In this life, in a fallen world opposed to God, things may get really tough sometimes. God will always be there through his spirit to hold us up and to take us through and remember whatever it takes it is totally worth it with the hope we have to come for no other God can save in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this uh, chapter in Daniel 3 today. Such an amazing story. Such an amazing story of your control over a king who thought he was in control. So relevant for our world today where politicians and others often think they're in control but we know you're in control. So relevant to our age when we have so many things, so many calls to the worship of things other than you. Please strengthen us, we pray through your spirit. We thank you for the presence of your spirit all the time um, to help us um, live for you, to take us through those difficult things that can happen in life. And we pray, Lord, that until the day that Christ arrives, you will help us to worship you alone. Amen.